Hello, my name is Hunter, and today I'll be reading from Psalm 125. Those who trust in the Lord are as Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people. From this time forth and forever, for the scepter of wickedness shall not rest upon the land of the righteous, so that the righteous will not put forth their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, and to those who are upright in their hearts. But as for those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead them away with the doers of iniquity. Peace be upon Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word now, we ask that uh, our hearts might be open to hear and receive. Lord, if we would come obstinate or hard, we ask by your grace to soften us. Uh, you are Lord of all, and we need to hear what you have to say. You are not silent. You've spoken. Let our ears be open to hear May you direct our hearts in the way we should go. May you make our, our lives to be built upon a firm foundation, to stand like the mountains. Lord, you can do this through your word and by your grace, and I pray that you would do it in us for your glory and for our joy. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you look in your Bible at Psalm 125, you'll see at the top something special. There is a superscription that identifies this psalm as a song of ascent. A song of ascent. Psalm 125 is one of 14 psalms that are all grouped together and carry this same special designation. They are psalms of ascending, psalms of ascent. They are songs that Israel would sing as they made the journey up to Jerusalem for the Day of Atonement, or for the celebration of the Passover, or to sacrifice and worship in the temple. I say they would go up to Jerusalem, not because all pilgrims were coming from the south, but because from whatever direction you approach the city, you would have to go up. You'd have to ascend. Jerusalem is up on top of Mount Zion. So on every road, you are gaining elevation as you go. Therefore, these psalms became known as the songs of ascent. You climb and sing these words as you see your final destination, the city. Your kids might have sung over the hill and through the woods to grandmother's house they go as they travel to grandma's house. Or worse, 99 bottles of beer on the wall. But Jesus, as a boy, would have sung these songs. These far more packed with truth and far less annoying songs. As he traveled to his father's house, the temple in Jerusalem. These songs that Jesus would have sung are rich with images and a sense of connection to the land. Look again, verse 1. 
Those who trust in the Lord are as Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people. These psalms are filled with a strong sense of place, which, in my mind, on this 4th of July weekend, begs a question. In what sense are we, as Christians, to love and feel connected to physical places in this world? In what ways are we, as Christians, to care about the land that we sojourn in? In what sense are we, as citizens of heaven, to be patriots for a place here on earth? Those are good questions to ask anytime, but especially on a 4th of July weekend. And I think this psalm gives us a healthy framework to answer those questions. But before we dive into the good answers that this psalm gives us, let me give you two bad answers. These are two extremes that the world would be delighted for us as Christians to fall into. When considering the question, are we as Christians to be patriots of of the place we live? There are two bad answers. The first bad answer is no, not at all, right? No, not at all. No, instead of loving your country, instead of loving your place, instead of feeling connected to your patch, you should be ashamed of it. The only patriotism permittable is the entirely critical kind. The only permitted patriotism is actually pessimism. It's all pessimism and shame. You probably know people who are like this. Everything in their world is seen through critical lenses and in the worst light possible. G.K. Chesterton calls such people cosmic anti-patriots. They're cosmic anti-patriots because it becomes clear that they don't really love that which they criticize. They don't really love the place that their lives are connected to. We've been able to live in several places around the world, and you can always tell when someone does not love the place they're in. You meet a person who lived in Paris and has nothing but criticism, no love of the place. The lack of love is always a big turnoff, especially to the French in Paris. It's a turnoff to those who do love the place despite its faults. The enemies of the gospel would love for us to fall into the trap, for our patriotism to be all criticism without any love. But clearly, the path for Christians can't be one devoid of love or fueled by pessimism. We're not to be the anti-patriots that the healthy citizen dismisses and detests. That's one bad answer, but there's also a second bad answer, a second pitfall to avoid. We're not to be overly pessimistic patriots, but we're also not to be overly optimistic patriots. In wishing to defend what we feel connected to against the anti-patriot, the overwhelmingly optimistic will defend the indefensible. My country doesn't make any mistakes. My party is always right. 
my preferred political candidate, politician, behavior is always excusable in my eyes. The enemies of Christ would love for us to fall off the donkey and into the ditch on this side just as much as the other, defending the indefensible, blindly following a party or a person believing they can do no wrong. Clearly, we can't go down this road either. We, after all, have a doctrine of sin, don't we? A doctrine of sin that prevents this kind of blind optimism. We expect there to be flaws. We expect there to be failures. We expect there to be errors and injustice at work in people and the systems they create. We don't defend sin in our land. But we also don't disparage the good, do we? We don't fall off the donkey on one side or the other. There is a way for us to hold on to the reins and keep our seat. There is a way to stand firm. A way to love a place and be the best kind of patriot. And Psalm 125 shows us how. Spoiler alert, I'm going to spoil the whole message right now. It all comes down to faith. It all comes down to what we believe. There are five verses in Psalm 125, and I'm going to give you five headings, one per verse. Jennifer can see I was reaching for a bottle of water. Thank you, Jennifer. (laughs) I'm going to give you five headings, one per verse, uh, and the first point is this, found in verse 1. Faith moves mountains and makes them. Faith moves mountains and makes them. Look at verse 1. Those who trust in the Lord are as Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. Jesus taught us that faith can move mountains. Psalm 125 says that faith can also make them. Faith can make us into a mountain. Through trust in the Lord, we become like Mount Zion. We will not be moved. Now, this probably has much more to do with the rock-solid object of our faith than with the rock-solid quality of our faith. I assume in Jesus' parable that both men who built a house did it similar quality work, but one built his house upon a rock and the other built his house upon sand. And you know what happens. The storm came and the house upon the sand fell. Great was its fall. The object we build upon matters more than the quality of the construction. The object we build our lives upon matters more than the quality of our faith. You can have a strong but misguided faith and build your life upon sand. Sincerity doesn't count for much if you're sincerely wrong, does it? The object of our faith matters more than the quality, but even those of the highest quality will still struggle with moments of unbelief. We see that in Scripture. John the Baptist, in prison, sending word to Jesus. Are you really the one we've waited for? 
or should we look for another? Peter, even as he walks on the water, begins to sink in fear and unbelief. The greats of the faith still struggle with unbelief, and we will wrestle with unbelief as well. We're doing this now. Every time we get frustrated, we wrestle with believing that God is in control. Every time we're envious, we wrestle with believing whether God has given me, really given me what I need. Whether God is a God who withholds what is good, or if he really knows what is best for me. But, we struggle, but as we fight the good fight of faith, battling our unbelief, not only do mountains move, but we become mountains ourselves. We grow strong and steady. But because our strength comes through faith in someone else, faith in the Lord, we don't grow proud. That's the amazing thing. We grow strong, but we don't grow proud because we can't boast in a strength that doesn't come from ourselves, can we? Faith acknowledges the real source isn't in here. It's not in me. Like Samson, our real strength isn't found in strong muscles. It's in our fragile hair. It's in a fragile but unbroken faith. Take scissors to our faith and our strength would fail us. Like Samson with his hair. But you might still be wondering, how can something fragile like faith make us strong like a mountain? Again, It's not the strength of the faith itself. It's the strength of the object that we believe in. It's the rock-solid nature of the truth that we are building our lives upon. We build upon a better foundation than others, enabling us to give a better answer to questions like, should we love our world? Should we love our country? Should we love our place? We believe in truths that help us avoid both pitfalls of no, not at all, and yes, above all else. We can be far more for this place, this country, than others because we believe that God so loved the world that he gave his son to redeem us, to redeem a place. We can believe that while at the same time, we are not utterly devastated when things go wrong, when things go south, when things break, <laughs> when you spill water on the pulpit. We, we aren't broken by such things because we believe we're just one mile away from glory, from a new heaven, a new earth, from throats that don't get dry. <laughs> we're just one mile away. If that's what we believe as Christians, that makes us stand firm, like mountains in a turbulent world. That's the first point. Here's the second. Faith sees self-surrounded. Faith sees self-surrounded. At this point, I really gave myself over to alliteration. Excuse me. You can can put faith sees yourself surrounded, but faith sees self-surrounded. Look at verse 2. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forever. Here is an image lovingly drawn from a beloved place. 
you can really, I can feel it. You can feel the affection and a strong sense of place in this verse. After all, who has ever gone to the mountains and hated the sight of them? Raise your hand. No, right? Even if you're one of those people who foolishly prefer the beach, you don't dislike the sight of mountains, do you? You just love another beauty. Uh, You love another place more. But imagine the scene. You're among the mountains you love the most in all the world. And there in the middle of the mountains sits your final destination, the city. The city where God is worshipped. The city where God's king is prophesied to come. It feels like you and your fellow travelers are all streaming into the city. You surround the city, ascending to it from every side. But as you do, you're told, it's not you who surround the city. It's God who surrounds you. Verse 2, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people. The very scenery around you testifies of something true about God. It testifies that he's immense. He is so much more immense than the mountains. He surrounds you, his people, with his presence. The majesty of the scene brings home an incredible truth to our hearts. God surrounds us always. The mountains surround us, the mountains surrounding us as we ascend into Jerusalem are there to remind us of something true about God. I wonder, have you ever experienced something similar? Where God impressed a truth about himself on your heart and mind through seeing a mountain or a landscape or a bird in flight. We can know what God is saying through the book of nature because he has blessed us with another book. We don't have to guess about it because he's told us. Verse 2, we don't have to guess about the bird in flight because he has told us that not an eagle soars nor a sparrow falls apart from his will. God speaks through the book of his creation, but you need to come to a place like Psalm 125 to get the divine interpretation. Here, we learn that when you see the mountains all around you, it ought to remind your heart of something about God. God surrounds you. God surrounds his people. This takes faith doesn't it? It takes faith because often it appears like we're surrounded not by God but by our enemies or at least those who think they're our cultural enemies and we can easily be discouraged when we feel outnumbered and surrounded. We can be like Elisha's servant seeing an army with horses and chariots encircling the city and say, Alas, what shall we do? But do you remember Elisha's response? He spoke from faith and said, Do not fear, for those who are with us 
are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he might see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Christian, you may feel like the cultural tides are shifting and the enemy is at the gate. You might be tempted to believe that politician or preacher who says the enemies are at the gate and only I can hold them back. It's tempting, but it's not true. Faith looks through the veil and sees what's really there. Greater is the one who is for us than any who stand against. We are not the ones surrounded by our enemies. Our enemies are the ones surrounded by our God. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people. Don't despair, church. Never despair, church. But believe this. Because God surrounds you like the mountains, all shall be well. And all manner of things shall be well. Every form of wickedness and injustice is destined to fail. Rebellion against God's will and design has an expiration date. It has an end. We see that. Look at verse 3. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest upon the land of the righteous, so that the righteous will not put forth their hands to do wrong. Here's a third point drawn from verse 3. Faith produces a patriotism of place. Faith produces a patriotism of place. There is talk of land here, of country in verse 3, and a genuine concern for these things. Christians of every nation and country should care about the land they live in. Like the psalm explains, psalmist expresses his care here. More than care, there is a love we ought to have for place and people. There is a love that is it's good for us to have. A love of place that makes us cultivate it and seek its good. This was part of mankind's original mandate in the Garden of Eden. Remember this? The man and woman were placed there by God to cultivate and work for the good of a place that was already good. Eden was good, but work for its good. Now, the world has since been broken, but that original mandate hasn't changed. In a world gone bad, the need to cultivate and work for good isn't any less It may be much more because futility and corruption now enters into the work we do. We're trying to grow tomatoes right now at home. (laughs) And between the heat and root rot and aphids and Japanese beetles, it is a lot more work than we thought. But cultivating something in love, pushing back the corruption, Pushing through the headaches is something we're called to do. It's part of our original purpose and mandate. 
loving a land and working for its good, cultivating a place as God's stewards here on earth. Now, think of a place that no one wants to be from, a place no one wants to cultivate. When we lived in England, that place was Middlesbrough. The the Jews would say, what good can come out of Nazareth? The English would say, what good can come out of Middlesbrough? Growing up in Clark County, in Jackson, Alabama, folks seemed to have the same attitude about Leroy on the other side of the bridge. What good can come out of Leroy? And you could probably fill in the blank with another place, Brookwood, Adger. (laughs) What good can come out? But now, suppose... There were people who really loved Middlesbrough. People who really loved Leroy. They loved it like they loved their own son with all of his faults. In fact, they love it so much they refuse to leave and refuse to leave its bad bits untouched. They cultivate it. They do good. They did all the good they could in their little sphere, in their little garden, in their little patch of Middlesbrough, Leroy, what have you. They became patriots for that place, patriots for Middlesbrough, patriots for Adger. What do you think happens to a place filled with people who love it and work for its good? What happens to such places? Whether it's Leroy or Middlesbrough, what happens? Or somewhere else, what happens to those places? You begin to catch small glimpses of Eden in those places. You begin to get small foretastes of the world that is to come. So, in what sense are we as Christians to be patriots? I think you see some of the key elements here. We are to be patriots for the world. Loving the place we're in, working for its good, praising what is right and correcting what is wrong, even if we find ourselves displaced, even if we're not living in the place we want to be. This was God's message to the Jews who were brought to Babylon against their will. Jeremiah 29, 7 God says, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord for its behalf. For in its welfare, you will have welfare. Be a patriot for the place God has put you. Even if Tuscaloosa, Alabama is not where you want to be. Be a patriot for the place God has placed you. Because like the Jews in Babylon, Ultimately, we are all in exile. We are all exiles here. We're all strangers and pilgrims journeying to our true home. But it is not wrong. It is right to love the place God has put you and to be a patriot for it. That's the third truth. Quickly, here is the fourth. I want you to see verse 4. Faith gazes at God's goodness. Faith gazes at God's goodness. Verse 4. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. As Christians, 
We don't just do good. We actively look for the good God is doing. This can be looking for where God is working and joining him in it. But it can also be as simple as recognizing and being grateful for the good that no one else sees or bothers to give thanks for. For example, most people take for granted amazing things, like the fact that trees can bear fruit. Apples, oranges, mangoes, figs. Do you love fresh figs? I do too. Most people take it for granted, but when you really think about it, there is no absolutely necessary reason for trees to produce delicious fruit at all. We take it for granted. What is in fact quite magical. G.K. Chesterton says, trees bear fruit because they are magic trees. They don't have to do this amazing thing, producing fresh figs, but they do. And it's magical. The magic comes from a maker. And the upright in heart look for the magic in creation and are glad in it. We gaze at God's goodness all around us and train our hearts to be grateful. Ask yourself this. What if you only had tomorrow what you gave thanks for today? How many good things would you still have? As Christians, we are to gaze long and gratefully at the good things around us. And we are to ask God to do even more good. That's what the psalmist is doing in verse 5. It's a petition. Verse 4, sorry, verse 4 says, Do good, O Lord. Do good to those who are good, to the upright in heart. Jesus says we are to ask We are to seek. We are to knock. We're to be like the persistent widow. Keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. If we're to be good patriots for the world and for the place we live, then this is a big part of it. Seeking good from God for the spot we call home. We'll be good patriots for a place as we pray for its good. And... We'll be winsome patriots for a place as we look at every good gift around us and are filled with gratitude for it. Let me tell you, every place I've lived has had its share of brokenness, but there were also so many displays of God's goodness to see and give thanks for everywhere, every place. People will notice when your gaze is fixed upon the good. Being a grateful, happy, loving Christian is one of the best apologetics for the gospel that the world will ever see. Very quickly, let's look at verse 5, final points. Here's our fifth and final point. Faith recognizes wrong roads and right ones. Faith recognizes wrong roads and right ones. We see this in verse 5. Verse 5 says, But 
As for those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead them away with the doers of iniquity. Peace be upon Israel. We can see from the end of this psalm and from personal experience that there are wrong roads in life. There are crooked paths. To paraphrase Proverbs, there's a way that seems right to us, but in the end, it gets us all killed. There are paths that seem right that don't lead to our flourishing, but to our destruction. There are roads, wrong roads in life. And guess what? We've all taken some of them, haven't we? We've all taken crooked paths. We thought this thing would make us happy. We thought something would satisfy us, but it didn't. Some things we thought would satisfy simply cannot. They're not designed to. God did design certain things to lead to human flourishing. But we've got to listen to him to know what those things are. He hasn't kept them a big secret, has he? We have mostly just haven't bothered to listen. Because we think that we naturally know the way to the good life. The way to human flourishing. But we don't. We can get some things right. But we still fall for other crooked roads. We can recognize that eating disorders don't lead to human flourishing. Everyone recognizes that, right? I say everyone, but people with eating disorders often don't recognize it. They might affirm anorexia isn't the path to human flourishing for me. For anyone, but then not recognize themselves as being anorexic, right? You can recognize the wrongness of the path, but not see that you're on it. Gluttony also isn't the path to human flourishing, but few recognize themselves as gluttons. Here is the challenge for us, church. The world is full of crooked ways, and people that don't see the harm inherent in those ways. Are we going to tell them? Are we going to say, this will not lead to your flourishing. This will not lead to peace, to shalom, the end of verse 5. This will not lead to life as it should be. Are we going to trust that God knows what he's talking about when it comes to what's good for us? And... Are we going to love people enough to tell them? To tell them that the emperor has no clothes. To tell them that this choice will not lead to your happiness, but to your shame. To tell them that this ideology you're eating up contains within it the seeds of its own destruction. That this path will take you to places you don't want to go. And cost you more than you want to pay. What kind of person does it take to say such things? And to speak truth against the riptide that is washing people out to sea all around us. What kind of person does it take? Answer. The smallest person who believes. Whose faith moves mountains, and makes them a mountain 
to stand against the current. The weakest person who by faith sees God's presence all around them, mightier than any enemy. The person who is a patriot for life and for a better world. A cosmic patriot for an everlasting kingdom. So, this 4th of July, cook your hot dogs, grill your hamburgers, launch your fireworks that you've purchased from Lucas and Matt and Christian and Elizabeth and the Seal family. (laughs) Do it all and be profoundly grateful for God's goodness in it all. This 4th of July, be a patriot for the place where God has put you and a cosmic patriot for the better country where Jesus has welcomed you in. Father, I ask that you would impress the truth of this psalm upon all of our hearts. A love for place, a patriotism that supremely holds Christ to be our king, that works for the good of the country we are in, of the people around us. Lord, change us from the critical anti-patriot to the one who in great loyalty and in great love serves in the brokenness around us. One who in great faith points others to the way of flourishing and off of crooked paths. May we point our own hearts and point others to Jesus continually. The one who has blazed the way, who has conquered death, who has overcome our sin, who has made us right with God forever, who welcomes us into a better country. May that faith fill our hearts and make us like Mount Zion, a mountain that stands forever. We ask this in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen.